1: I'm Charles Pryor, and welcome to New Books and British Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I want to begin by saying that we at the NBN like to keep our audio files as free from background noise as possible. But given that we're all working from home, you may hear the phone ring or the dog bark. That's okay. These are sounds of life, which can and does go on in these challenging times. As historical topics, political revolutions come in and out of fashion, At the moment, the American Revolution, as an ideological struggle, engages the public, but historians are less sure. Books that used to have the revolution at their center now approach it from the edges and peripheries, integrating the experiences of people and communities excluded by studies of ideological origins. In the United Kingdom, still mired in Brexit, the Civil War past inflects present politics, even if the conflict itself has been nudged off the school curriculum. In the 1990s, historians of England refought the civil wars in battles of footnotes. It took entire books to summarize the scholarship on events that were sometimes civil wars and others' revolutions, here wars of religion, and there the wars of the three kingdoms. Michael Braddock is professor of history at the University of Sheffield and is a leading voice in the study of England's revolutionary past. In The Common Freedom of the People, John Lilburn and the English Revolution, He takes a fresh look at the turmoil that gripped England for three decades in the middle of the 17th century. His focus is on one man's path through these years, a path that was one of stark public suffering, personal conviction, principled argument, and an unwavering dedication to the idea that common liberties were the highest political goods. Michael Braddock joins me from Sheffield. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you, Charles. Good to be here.
1: So I want to just start with the basic question. Um, who was John Lilburn?
2: So Lilburn was the second son of a minor gentry family from the northeast of England. And um, as such, he went into an apprenticeship and might have lived out a life of obscurity, really, had he not become engaged in the very fraught politics of England between Around about the mid 1630s, and Lilburn's death in the 1650s, um, he became engaged as a partisan in religious opposition to the to Charles's Church, and then that led to a career of uh, very public uh, activism, um, leading to leading him into conflict with with every government under which he lived, actually during his adult life. Um, So in one way, he's a kind of everyman figure, or not quite an everyman figure, but a a very minor figure. Uh, But in another, he epitomizes the kind of turmoil and and radicalizing effects of the revolution in the mid-17th century. And so he's become something of a historical figure as a result.
1: Mm. I mentioned in my introduction the the complexity of the English Civil War, but I wonder, just for the benefit of an audience that may not be familiar with this particular history, if you could
2: give a, a quick synopsis of really what that conflict was about. So during the 1630s, I'd say, in England, there were two main concerns about King Charles, that he wasn't very reliable on his use of the law and the constitution and that he wasn't a reliable defender of English Protestantism. And those two fears in England um, uh, led to a loss of active support for Charles. Uh, it's sometimes called the War of the Three Kingdoms because it was external shocks on England that made those English tensions manifest and really matter. So uh, a rebellion in Scotland about Charles's religious policy split England rather than the usual experience of English uniting to um, uh, resist Scottish uh, influence, the, the English were actually divided by the Scottish rebellion. And again, in 1641, when the Irish rebelled in defence of Catholicism, the English uh, divided not about Catholicism, but about who could be trusted to fight Catholicism. And that led to the English to support Parliament rather than the King as the basis on which to combat Irish Catholicism. So there's this, there are these tensions in England which are made manifest through a crisis of the Three Kingdoms, and that's why there's uh, historians disagree about how you should uh, term the conflict. My, my interest was in the English dimensions of this, so my book is about the English revolution that comes out of this crisis of the Three Kingdoms, and Lilburn's career offers a way of understanding the dynamics of that English element of the wider crisis. So
1: you've written on the uh, Civil War period before um, God's Fury, England's Fire is, is now one of the standard texts that we use to to approach this period. It's a, it's a masterful synthesis. But in terms of how you came to this project, you know, why John Lowburn? Why use him as a lens uh, to look at this period?
2: Um, well, I, I would say, first of all, it's an absolutely fascinating life. He... he um... Uh, was imprisoned at the age of 20, refused to um, answer charges and was imprisoned for contempt. Um, and from that moment, when in his early 20s, when he died in his early 40s, that 20-year period, he was in prison or exile for about 12 and a half years. Uh, he was accused of treason four times, on trial for his life three times, and... Um, and he was often present at key moments in the revolution, like a kind of Zelig, the Woody Allen character. He's often just hovering around the fringes of some of the, the key moments in English events. So it's a very fascinating life. Uh, and, and there's a, an amazing character behind it, a man of extraordinary sort of fortitude and courage, but also a kind of stubbornness and bloody-mindedness. And I, I found that... I found the the life and the person very engaging. But uh, returning to that point that he he was in normal times someone destined for a life of provincial obscurity, but he became a national figure, and that was because he commanded public support. He became a master of new arts of doing politics through prints, through street demonstrations, uh, dramatizing fundamental political issues in a way that garnered emotional commitment from people. And, and I was interested in that way of doing politics, which was new, and which was intrinsic to the radicalism of the revolution. It, it, the revolution became so radical because there were people like Lilburn doing politics in this new way. So there's a couple of things I just want to
1: draw out there. The first, we'll come back to the, the way that he enacts his own politics, but I just want to zero back on, on the radicalism. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of the, the London context uh, that radicalism emerges out of? A lot of uh, specialized historians have written in particular about one locale in London that produces a, a lot of radical thinkers. Uh, I was wondering if you could just sort of sketch uh, the, the sort of the urban character of,
2: of radicalism in
1: London in this period.
2: Yeah, so the, the real kind of sociological roots of it are in <clears throat> independent congregations in London. In principle, everyone was a member of a parish community in England and, and went to hear um, a religious message that was authorised ultimately by bishops and, and and was orthodox in terms of the national um, official religious position. But in, in London, there's so many churches that there is something like a, a free market in, in religious opinion and people could, could go to hear people that, that, whose views they found more attractive. And that was supplemented by a kind of voluntary religion where uh, people could club together to fund a lecturer or, or someone had endowed a lectureship to enrich the religious life of the city. So there's a much greater variety of religious voices in, in London, and that leads to uh, a kind of voluntarism in religion where people could gather with like-minded souls to hear the version of Christianity that they found most, uh, m- most aligned with their own conscience. And not all of that produces radicalism by any means, of course, but it, it does create a kind of spaces where where radical groups can congregate, and so the the I think you're probably alluding to Coleman Street, uh, yes. a single street in London where uh, we know people who had some connection with the Coleman Street congregations and and or, or the businesses along Coleman Street were in the 1630s or in the 1640s, very important in, in radical politics of a, of a quite different kind. Once the revolution uh, um, began to, to unfold and politics began to go in new directions, the Coleman Street people were very active in, in in a particular strand of that. So there's this sociological basis in the independent congregations. A second key element is print. Print. Um, Uh, Print was a a monopoly of the stationers' company and the stationers' company gave the government a means to regulate what was printed. But there's illegal print in London in the 1630s, people running um, presses, uh, but most importantly, they ran them from Amsterdam and uh, Rotterdam and other towns in uh, the Netherlands. And there's a strong connection between these radical groups in London and illegal printing in Holland. Uh, which allowed, again, uh, it's not necessarily a radical thing, but it, it allowed radicals a space and a means to communicate and a means to come together. So so print is important because it allows people to form ideological connections when they haven't actually met, they don't know each other, but they uh, understand the same text in the same way and they're drawn to a particular ideological position. So the, the London milieu is really those two things, I think, an illegal print network and, and um, the possibilities of um, independent and voluntary religion and, and making ideological communities rather than just communities of people who happen to live in the same parish.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: So he comes out of this radical uh, London context. And as you mentioned, he then becomes this sort of uh, he, he's everywhere. He's he fights at the at the epic Battle of Edge Hill, he's captured, he joins Cromwell's Army of the Eastern Association, he uh, spends a lot of his time in prison. He writes something in 1649 that gets him banished. Uh, he's exiled. He becomes involved in London politics. He gets involved in politics uh, in in Lincolnshire. He becomes a public advocate. Uh, it's 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 quite a it's quite a life. It's a short life, but you you write, um, and this is the p- point I wanted to circle back to that he builds, and I'm quoting here, partisan solidarities through the dramatization of his own struggles. Uh, what? How did he do this? How did he? How did he put himself at the center of this? And then, how did he sort of fashion his public image? If that's what he was doing,
2: so I think one. Uh, I mean, there are lots of of different dimensions to that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he did that all the time. But it, uh, one way of thinking about it is that he he signed up very early for the parliamentarian armies, and and he suffered for them. He was captured and imprisoned. He was. Uh, he had his personal goods taken by royalists. He had arrears of pay. Um, Parliament voted him compensation for his sufferings, but he never got the money from Parliament. And he, throughout the sixteen forties, he's asking for the money um, and not getting it because of factional uh, politics in Parliament. His enemies, his factional enemies at Parliament, blocked the committees. So this is all rather technical and dull and and many previous writers about Lilburn have not wanted to engage with it. But to Lilburn it was quintessential illustration of the injustice of the parliamentary cause. You know, these people were just as capable of blocking you in what was your due as the Royalists had been. And by sixteen forty-five he'd had a kind of animal farm moment that the Royalist uh, humans were actually or rather the other way around, the parliamentarian pigs, were no better than the royalist humans had been. Once the royal, once the parliamentarians were in power, they were just as capable of standing between you and what you were due. So it looks like really small beer. And, and many of his contemporaries said, we're all owed money. You know, there is no money. It, you, you, you know, pipe down, you're not the only one who suffered. But for him, it was a, a sign that the change of regime would just be a change of name. And there wouldn't, and unless people fought, there wouldn't be a more just regime in in England. And and they needed to make sure that that people of integrity were in in power and not just the people who currently were. So he he would make a stand on the on apparently the most uh, minor issue as an illustration of this of some larger case like this, um, which allowed some people to say he's just a. You know, he's just self-involved and a a troublemaker and a bad neighbor. But other people could see that the injustice Lilburn was suffering was an injustice they themselves had suffered, and it could make his abstract claims about the state seem very real. Because yes, I can can see that is right. That's happened to me too. This is an unjust regime. We do need fundamental reform, and and it it was that uh, sort of capacity. To to escalate that uh, that allowed him to stand for the issues of every man, um, because many of the things he complained about weren't very out of the ordinary, actually. So,
1: I mean, the question is, though, um, as you go through the chronology of his life, I mean, he finds himself at a number of points. Really, where his life is is literally on the line, and it's yeah. in the hands it's in the hands of people who have uh, good reason to to want to silence him. And it, um, and so, given given this, I mean, he's not he's not uh, you know waving from the balcony of the Ecuadorian embassy. <laughs> he's 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 right he's right in there, right? Yeah. Um, what. What is this guy what's keeping this guy going? what's keeping these pots boiling?
2: He has uh, unbelievable um courage i think and and he and that comes from um god uh, he he says that all the time it was Christ, god God who gave me the strength to suffer like Christ in this uh, in this cause um and it leads him to uh, to be utterly casual of his own safety, um, inviting prosecution. Um, I, I, one brief example of that is that in 1646, he was conf- in conflict with his immediate commander, and that led him into conflict with the Earl of Manchester. Um, and in a pamphlet, he said the Earl of Manchester's head had stood too long on his shoulders, effectively accusing him of uh, treason. And all that was about tactics and and their view of the eventual settlement. But what was at stake really was Lil Benzeria's and uh, compensation. But anyway, he said this about Manchester and he he would have got a a week in Newgate and been told to make a formal apology. But what he did instead was say, I will not hear the charges against me brought by the House of Lords because the House of Lords has no jurisdiction over commoners. And he, he stuck his fingers in his ears while the charge was being read so that he, he, he literally couldn't hear it because he said, if I hear this charge, Magna Carta has become worthless. And that kind of um, insane kind of escalation right. to, to I, I, the House of Lords has no jurisdiction in this country rather than I don't like the Earl of Manchester. That led the House of Lords to imprison him at their pleasure. He was, in, he was sent to the Tower of London with no end to that sentence simply by the declaration of the House of Lords. So on the one hand, it's a kind of insane escalation and, and extraordinary courage to, to push an argument to that point. But on the other hand, he made his point because the House of Lords had, betrayed, had, had behaved so arbitrarily in committing him to prison on an open-ended basis for saying he wouldn't hear their charge. So... Uh, I, I think it's driven in the end by, or he, he talks about it in terms of a, a religious justification, but I think there's a deeper personal characteristic. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is his gentry honour, his gentry sense of honour and his, um, how his father had been cut from a similar cloth, as was his uncle. over these northeastern um, gentry family that knew their rights, fought for their rights, saw it as an honourable thing, and dishonorable to ever back down in a combat for your rights. So but he he always talks about it in, in religious terms.
1: But I mean it, there's the an additional dimension too is this comes that there are other costs um, he he's you know he's basically bankrupted yeah. um, uh, he's in 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 tremendous amounts of debt um, uh, you know a 7000 pound fine that he has to pay on banishment he loses children uh, to disease. Uh, he's separated from his family for long, long periods of time. So there's, there's tremendous personal cost to this. Um, what, what do we think about his, his, his state of mind through the period? I mean, what, what keeps him, you mentioned is his faith in God, but I mean, what keeps his family supporting him
2: well, his Elizabeth, his wife, seems seems to have been utterly devoted to the cause and, and to him and to have accepted the sacrifice the whole family made as as part of the deal. But it, it's very hard to know because there's very little that survives from Elizabeth and, and most of the representation of Elizabeth that we have are, are, are via John and that's the vision of his wife that he no doubt found comfortable to have. So... But he, he, he's very uh, casual also of, of his family's well-being, and he sees the sacrifices of his family as part of his own sacrifices, uh, as just a natural extension of them. As you say, Elizabeth bore ten children. Only um, four of them lived, outlived John. Um, she lived on in poverty. And there's this terrible irony, given what I say about the importance of his gentry honour to him, he failed utterly to provide for his family. He never had a trade. He never had a secure landed estate. He never had a public office. He never established himself as a gentleman, even though that was clearly at the core of what he wanted. But if, if I may, I just add one final thing: that he he ended in um, he ended his life as a spiritual journey, arriving in uh, at a point of renunciation and Quakerism. And at that point, he starts talking to Elizabeth, not just uh, your sacrifices are necessary for my cause, your, your kind of collateral damage for my cause. He started saying, you're, you're getting in my way. I've renounced my family and I'm, I've, I'm now with God. And and that's a different tone. And, and uh, for me, I found that quite hard reading those letters at the end of his life where he's saying to Elizabeth, I'm afraid, you know, you must go your own way now. And, and I, I advise you to find God and embrace poverty rather than ask me for money. So uh, I've got enormous respect for Lilburn because he has a strength of character that I don't have, uh, a fortitude that I don't have. But there is something uh, also pretty um, inhuman about it. I just want to conclude
1: with, uh, you know, to take, just widen the scope a little bit and and to, to return to another thing that you write in the closing pages of the book, when you characterize his political activity, and you write that Lilburn had a genius for seeing issues of fundamental importance in the detail of social and political life, and, and we've we've touched on some of that. But what does what does looking at Lilburn and his his real his the way that he's really embroiled in a whole series of very local contexts? How does that change? our view of, of this period and the issues at stake, and how does it add complexity to our understanding of the English Revolution?
2: I think the um, the two sides in the revolution were de- defined by what they were scared of rather than what they were for. So the royalists were afraid of Puritanism and, and uh, populism, and the uh, parliamentarians were afraid of Popery and of arbitrary government. So they could identify what was a th- what threatened their view of the good life more easily than they could threaten their, their def- more easily than they could define the good life and uh, I, I think uh, once the parliament started to win, it became more important to identify the good life and at that point people did begin to 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 fall out amongst themselves uh, and I think you capture that dynamism much more. Effectively, if you see one person's journey through these arguments, that in 1642, Lilburn is absolutely clear what the threat is. But by 1649, at the end of the decade, when they're trying to establish a peace settlement, having won the war, it, it, you can see he's he's finding it hard to agree with the people he's with whom he's been, you know, on whose side he's been fighting. Um. And he came to that through um, law and religion, the two things I started with, really. Uh, the English common law encourages you to think that the uh, where a hedge is is a matter of property rights. It's not a matter of where the hedge is. It's a matter of uh, fundamental property rights. And if, if the hedge is in the wrong place, then property rights are worthless. And and early modern religion encourages the same thing, that a personal fault is of cosmic significance because it's it's sin and it's evidence of a fallen world. And so they both these habits of thought in, invite people to move from very concrete, specific problems to issues of absolute fundamental importance. And and you can follow that through the life of one person in the revolution as as the the, the behaviour of Sir Arthur Hazelrig, for example, in 1653 For Lilburn, that shows that the whole regime is absolutely corrupt and that they haven't established a good life. They've defeated popery and arbitrary government, but now there's a new threat. Um, And I think that that view of a very dynamic, fluid revolution in which people are seeking to define a contested good life, but seeing in lots of detail fundamental problems in the world, I think that's much easier to capture through this very well-documented life of John Lilburn. you you could do it for other individuals who took very different journeys but but Lilburn is one way of understanding that dynamic so so I'm not saying Lilburn is typical of the revolution but he reveals the dynamic of the revolution
1: I've been speaking with Michael Braddock the author of The Common Freedom of the People John Lilburn and the English Revolution published by Oxford University Press
2: Professor Braddock I really appreciate your time well thanks very much Charles that was good fun